2019, fintech became more than just a buzzword used by insiders. It went mainstream. That was in part due to the growth of startups that bring tech to financial services in totally new ways, but also because the world's largest financial services firms and tech companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, for example, started to work together to bridge the worlds of finance and technology. Though a lot of this happened this year, some of us have been at fintech for a little longer. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later, and I'm also the chief operating officer of Aladdin Wealth, a wealth technology business that builds software to simplify managing money for retail investors. Today, I'm going to talk to Sudhir Nair, head of the Aladdin business, which focuses on institutional money managers, the sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, pensions, and the world's largest owners of assets. Aladdin was started at BlackRock at the time of the company's founding, and today is an operating system for managing money. On this episode of The Bid, Sudhir and I will talk about what we're seeing in fintech for both big money managers and consumers, and what we think the future looks like from the need to scale to a growing demand for sustainability. So let's get to it. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sudhir. Thank you, MC. I'm happy to be here. So fintech is very hot right now, and it's probably going to stay that way for a while, even though, well, you've actually been in it since before fintech was even a term. One indicator of how hot it is, you know, venture capital-backed fintech companies raised $40 billion in 2018. That was up 120% from the year before. And this year in 2019, it'll probably be even more. And most of that's focused on consumer fintech, or at least that's what, you know, listeners, when they think fintech, probably think of like challenger banks or payments, payments, robo-advice and the like. But you're in a pretty different part of the fintech world, which is enterprise and specifically technology for asset managers, sovereign wealth funds, pensions, insurance companies is the world's largest managers of money. What does technology do for them and why does it matter to them? It's critically important for them because at the end of the day, managing money is an information processing exercise. And I would say that across the board, around the globe, there is definitely a reinvention happening. And everything from customer expectations and the types of products and services customers are looking to buy to how they would like it delivered to what they're willing to pay is changing out from under the typical asset manager. I think one of the changes we're going to see is that there's going to be less and less full-stack asset managers. And by full-stack, I mean organizations that can really competitively afford to focus on manufacturing, portfolio construction, distribution. Today, there are many of them. But what we're seeing is that oftentimes they're not able to deliver the value differentiation and scale in order to properly compete. So what we're going to see is just a shift where every organization is going to need to pick their areas of specialty and focus in some ways like picking your major at college and making sure that they're doubling down on their focus and attention there in order to approve their capabilities while at the same time partnering with others to help them in places where they're not. I think people are really just starting to wake up and realize that they can't do everything themselves. Mm -hmm. And this is going to require a whole new level of cooperation and, in some cases, coopetition, where asset managers, asset servicers, banks and broker-dealers are all going to need to find new ways of working together to create a seamless end-to-end experience for the client but at the same time through partnership and integration. I mean, you could argue that wherever there's Excel spreadsheets, fax machines, or phone calls, there's an opportunity to have some interconnectivity. 
And it's a matter of just figuring out that we have the right partner. There's like a software product on the other end of some interaction that you can link to that creates like a next generation sort of technology enabled experience. What are some other examples? Is it like accounting? Is it trading? Is it linking to client reporting? All the above? I think you're absolutely right. The barrier in my mind has never been the absence of the technology. It was always the willingness of the participants to collaborate. Mm -hmm. So there's an opportunity now to collaborate and work together. But it's that spirit of partnership that's really fueling the acceleration, not because some new magic technology has been created. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned that collaboration and willingness to cooperate is like the most important thing. I think that's part of why distributed ledger technologies and blockchain haven't really gotten off the ground, mm -hmm. right? Many people who are so excited about the potential a couple of years ago at the beginning of that hype cycle were like, oh my goodness, there's so many antiquated practices in financial services operations. Couldn't we revolutionize it? Mm -hmm. But getting consensus around what kind of governance you would have for an entirely new technology was just too hard. And so we found that people are too slow to want to have an entire new system. Perhaps there's more opportunity if you're incrementally changing something that you already use, like Aladdin, for example. I think that's right. I also think that, you know, at these points of friction, there's usually somebody making money off of it. Yeah. And <laughs> right. uh, there's sometimes a, a lack of interest or inertia around making things too efficient. Right. And I think it's really when the industry comes together and recognize that, this needs to change. It's in the best interest of customers. And by collaborating on a technology, we can get there faster, that we really see momentum. That dynamic between what's in the best interest of the customer and what's in the best interest of the provider is such an interesting one. And in the example of WealthTech, headwind for digital advice is that often advisors have been nervous about disintermediating themselves, about potentially losing some of their business if they deliver too smooth of a user experience that allows an end investor to interact too simply with their money and make investment decisions. So we've actually seen on the WealthTech site a lot of anxiety about the best user experience, which for most technology products, user experience is the business, right? You develop the best product you have a business because you get traction where people want to use it. So how do you think about user experience on the institutional side where, for example, your customer doesn't go to an app store and download Aladdin versus an Aladdin competitor? They're sitting at their desk and their employer has chosen Aladdin and they don't really have a choice about what software to use. So how do you think about how important it is to deliver you know, user delight, if you will? It's incredibly important. It's no different with institutional organizations in the business that I'm a part of than it is anywhere else. And I think at the end of the day, people vote with their feet. And while enterprise technology is sold at the enterprise level, we have tens of thousands of users who interact with our technology in 70 different countries around the world each and every day. So we've really got to not think about these big organizations. We've got to think about individual users and the segments that they most relate to. So traders think about issues and workflows and concerns related to traders. Portfolio managers are very different. Risk professionals, compliance officers. So when we design the technology, we really focus on what is the individual end user journey? What are the jobs and the tasks that he or she are going to look to do using our technology each and every day? And how can we create as seamless and unified an experience as possible? Now, don't get me wrong. I think the state of enterprise technology and user experience, we're in the very early innings. Admittedly, we're very far behind where I think consumer technology is today. But I think there's an incredible opportunity to play catch up 
And a lot of the partnerships and collaborations you've seen between financial services and big technology companies have been around combining the best of both worlds, taking great investment capabilities and combining it with a slick, modern way of engaging end clients. Totally. And 2019 saw a lot of those partnerships that you just mentioned. You know, Apple, for example, launched a credit card with Goldman Sachs. Amazon has continued to grow small business lending in partnership with J.P. Morgan and a few other banks. Facebook, not so much in partnership, perhaps to their detriment in isolation, tried to launch a global currency. We partnered with Microsoft. So there's a lot of this partnership between technologies, companies that have mastered user experience, customer acquisition, and financial services Mm -hmm. firms. Is that relevant for institutional investors and the clients that you're talking to? Do they care? I think they absolutely care. It's tough for me to speak on behalf of all of them, but, (laughs) you know, less so about any individual partnership. More so about the concept, because at the end of the day, they're trying to get very close to their end clients and to provide the best level of service in the most modern tech experience. And I think these partnerships are going to accelerate that. So some of these organizations, they have hundreds, if not thousands, of internal technologists. You may ask yourself, what do they get out of partnering with someone like Microsoft? And it goes back to that not everybody has the same level of expertise And it's all around combining where you have scale and expertise relative to where somebody else might in order to build something unique, differentiated, and ultimately faster to get to your end client. Switching gears just a little bit, but in the same spirit as recognizing where you have expertise and where someone else might, you're right now in the middle of integrating eFront, which is a private market fintech company. BlackRock had some game in that area, but recognizing the opportunity, decided to acquire eFront to sort of get ahead of the game and build on their significant global platform. So how's the integration going, and what are you learning about how fintech for private market investing is any different from public market investing? Great question. So before I jump into the integration, let me set a little bit of context around what's happening with portfolios and private markets in general. And it goes back to the point I made a moment ago around how much is changing. If you look at the average portfolio and where assets are being allocated, there's an increasing need to allocate assets towards the private markets. So what does that mean? It means as opposed to and in addition to traditional assets like stocks and bonds, things that trade in liquid markets and or on exchanges. Because of the return profiles of those asset classes, in order to meet future obligations, for example, the needs of a pension 20 years out, Mm -hmm. there's a recognition that we need to be investing more into some of these more illiquid and private asset classes, whether it's private equity, real estate, infrastructure. The challenge is that the technologies available are really suited towards public markets. So as a result, you have this imbalance between how an investment organization or a pension fund can view their public assets relative to their private assets. With eFront, we're very excited because even seven and a half months in, we see tremendous opportunity to combine everything we've been doing for the last 30 years with Aladdin, largely focused on the public markets, with everything that our new partners at eFront have been focused on for the last two decades with private markets. We're working on something called the whole portfolio view, which exactly as it's named is really a way to show someone who has 50% of their portfolio invested in stocks and bonds and 50% of their portfolio in private equity, real estate and infrastructure, a single integrated view of risk, leveraging all of the great data from eFront in a way that shows them risk exposure, risk contribution and stress testing, public and private all in one place. 
And to someone who doesn't work in this field, it might be surprising that that doesn't exist, but it really doesn't exist, right? So like the data, for example, just to be able to provide that risk view on the private market side is like, it's difficult to come by, much less the integrated approach, right? Totally different. In fact, just the data, the workflow, the transparency, in some ways, the private markets are a decade plus behind where the public markets are in terms of the level of availability and transparency. I guess the word private is there for a reason. (laughs) And we see every organization trying to tackle it themselves, which I think creates an opportunity. And we're not the first here, but hopefully with our new partners, we'll be increasingly making progress towards trying to build industry standard ways of talking about these portfolios Mm -hmm. and industry standard ways of collecting data that every organization can share. To that point, it's kind of amusing that these companies that are investing in the technology companies of the future all are so lacking in technology themselves, right? Venture capital firms, private equity firms. Moving to a different trend, ESG, or environment, social governance factors and investing strategies. This has been around for a while. I actually started my career covering renewable energy when clean tech was just first booming, like over 10 years ago. But it's getting that much more traction now, particularly in Europe, as investors are increasingly thinking about what their money is doing for them, whether they're sovereign wealth funds or individuals. How is that sort of filtering through on the technology side? What are you hearing about ESG interest in terms of technology and data from clients? You know, if I were to sum it up, there's an enormous supply-demand imbalance between the demand-interest level of discussion around ESG relative to the supply of what's available Mm -hmm. in terms of data, analytics, technology capabilities. And I think there's a race in the marketplace to sort of tighten that up. But at a minimum, I think the definition of what investors and the investment process are looking for is quickly evolving in a positive way. ESG is quickly changing from being a type of investment mandate to a fundamental component of every investment process. It's yet another lens to think about portfolios and asset allocation. It's like thinking about the portfolio from a market risk perspective or a credit risk perspective. So because of that, there's a pretty profound change of what that means in terms of the data that people will ultimately need and the technical capabilities that they'll want to have access to in order to properly unlock the data. So what do I mean by that? ESG is no longer going to be an analytic on a report. It's not a score in isolation. It's a framework that will bring standardization and access to new data sets in a way that lets every organization iterate and build their own capabilities so that way they can have their own proprietary view of where ESG should be allocated and not. All that is so qualitative. It sounds like getting to a framework approach will be really tough, but the demand is there. So we have to get there as an industry, basically. But I think there's also, and this goes back to thinking about our end clients, creating a common way of, for investors to think about ESG. I think is critically important. Right now, there is too much dispersion and too much variation. And I think it's important that we as an industry use technology and use common data sets to bring some standardization and then allow every asset manager to bring their own flavor to the conversation. Right. I mean, you could perhaps think back to when there was some dispersion and how people thought about risk and there's been standardization there. So perhaps it's not that different. It's very similar. Yeah. So we've hit on a couple trends. Looking ahead to 2020, sounds like you think there's more focus on ESG, sort of standardization ESG ahead. What other trends do you think we'll see in the next year in fintech? I think there's three that we're very focused on. They're not new trends, but they're ones that we certainly see accelerating. One is just this concept of the whole portfolio and the increased importance on portfolio construction. 
what investors are looking for in terms of delivering portfolio outcomes or investment outcomes. So what do I mean by that? We're seeing the entire industry, whether it be the institutional side or wealth managers, focusing less on individual products, focusing more on having thoughtful conversations around retirement. How much money will I have when it's my time to retire? Will I be able to afford to be able to send my kids to school? Mm -hmm. So the emphasis and the focus on portfolio construction is going to continue to pick up. And the need to have technology that allows you to bring asset classes together to build better risk-adjusted portfolios will become a requirement in table stakes. I think the second big trend is along those lines in terms of increasingly wanting to get closer to your client. We talked a minute ago about user experience and how there might be some hesitance to sort of provide a more digital experience mm-hmm. with a view that it might erode the value proposition. I think the general sense is that clients and customers are ultimately going to redefine where they find value. And the definition of service can't be delivery of a report. Clients need to feel empowered. They want to use technology to be able to self-service where appropriate. And I think it creates an opportunity for the right organizations to have a differentiated conversation with clients about the portfolio, about the future, and about risk, not solely about providing them delivery of reporting and data. Mm -hmm. And then the third major trend is really this concept of end-to-end. You know, really thinking about the beginning of the investment process all the way through to the investment process and making sure that you have a seamlessly integrated and highly efficient workflow to get there. That's going to require relying on creating the right interoperability and the right connectivity between your risk management, portfolio management, trading and operations, all the way through to fund accounting and custody. That doesn't exist today. And certainly there are several organizations, Aladdin is one of them, who are on a mission to try and create that seamless link. That theme of interoperability and how technology like APIs, application programming interfaces, is allowing embedding services in different platforms, taking a step back in consumer tech, I think that's something we'll see in 2020. We'll see payments, we'll see micro-lending embedded in more consumer services. So you're not just going to a financial services platform to actually engage in financial services. We're seeing more and more of these companies that are like debit card as a service, credit card as a service, lending as a service. And so it's possible that we'll see more of that embedded in retail, for example, on the consumer side, which I think for our wealth management and bank clients calls into question how they take advantage of that opportunity and shift. So to sum up, where do you think asset management is today in the digital transformation journey? I just mentioned banks relative to banks who've been investing in, quote, digital transformation for over a decade now. Where do you think asset owners are? I think still early on in terms of the transformation, but at the same time recognizing it's not an industry that hasn't focused on technology. I almost think of it as sort of three chapters. I've been doing this for close to 20 years. And when I started, it was all around the model of best of breed. You know, lots of different systems, each of which with some competency or capability, lots of Excel spreadsheets, and asset managers needing to figuring out all the wiring and the plumbing to connect it all in place. Over the past probably decade, there's been a dramatic shift towards consolidating, simplifying, and landing on a handful of larger systems where they were looking to do more in one place. And now we're entering what I think is really a third chapter, which is really going back to a much more flexible, option-oriented approach where there are different systems, different technologies that are fit for purpose. There's an increasing need and desire to sort of innovate yourself and build your own proprietary technology. But through these data standards and APIs, 
connect them back to centralized sources of data. So I think the next five to 10 years is going to be all about having the ability to differentiate yourself on both the investment process as well as how you interact with your clients, but having a really strong foundation of both workflow and data sitting at the core. So you mentioned you've been doing this for 20 years. You joined BlackRock in 2000? I did. And at that time, Aladdin had, what, three clients? Now it's a billion-dollar business that you run. What brought you to BlackRock? Well, when I studied in school, I focused on two things. One was finance. The other was information systems. And part of it was just— So prescient of you. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was sort of built for BlackRock, I guess. And when I joined here, I was just fascinated both with the quality of people that I was working with, but the type of work that I was able to focus on at a very young age. And, you know, just wanting to feel like what I was doing was making a difference and seeing how— because of the way we work with clients, because of the deep multi-year partnership, you sort of get on this journey with an organization and you're with them through all of the ups and downs, and you see how the technology ultimately unlocks business transformation. I think that's very different from working at a software organization where you know, you sort of deliver the technology and then sort of lose touch with where it goes mm-hmm. next. Mm-hmm. For us, having done this for my entire professional career, it's been incredibly rewarding just to see how organizations have evolved and I believe improved as a result of working alongside us. And so when you joined 20 years ago, what was Aladdin? Where was it at that point? How many people were there? What what did you do all day? It was a much smaller organization. (laughs) Um, Sadly, I think I did the same thing all day, very (laughs) similar to what I do today, which was spending a lot of time with clients and thinking about Mm -hmm. what the product needed to do next. And I think that Aladdin was very similar in terms of its core mission of connecting people and providing end-to-end capabilities. But at the same time, since that time, it's grown quite a bit. And a big reason for that is just with every new client, we get the benefit of so many new perspectives and ideas. We've used the term over the years, collective intelligence. And for us, the feedback loop that you can create from all of these organizations around the world, the ideas, the perspective, the constructive criticism, the complaints that you get is what ultimately fuels what we do and makes the technology better each and every year. Rapid fire round. So I'm going to ask you a couple more personal questions. You can answer yes, no, or a quick answer. You ready? Yes. Your favorite app? Uber. (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) Where would we be without it? I also used the Chick-fil-A app over the weekend, and it was incredible. (laughs) Did you really? I did. It was incredible. I was in the office, sadly enough, on Saturday, and my (laughs) kids had friends over visiting from Philadelphia. And I get this phone call like, they all want Chick-fil-A. And I'm like, okay, that's good. Let me know how it goes. And they're like, well, when you leave, come by and pick it up because there's one on 23rd Street. And keep in mind, we've never gone to this Chick-fil-A. We just know it's there. So I downloaded the app. I, in the taxi, heading down to 23rd Street, placed the order, which was five kids' meals. (laughs) And then you walk in. There's a kiosk. You type in a code. You walk to the side. You don't talk to anybody. And then they just call out your name. And then, boom, there's your bag of food. I didn't have to deal with a line or right. any of that stuff. It was great. Did they say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am? Because I think that's like the highlight of Chick-fil-A. They have such good manners. It's a wonderful customer experience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> An app or technology that you wish existed? I think we'll get there eventually, but I wish there was a way to translate what was in my brain into text so I <laughs> could stop texting. <laughs> So much safer for drivers, too. Yes, that would yes. be yeah. easier on my hands. I feel like the U.S. government should invest in that. <laughs> Favorite TV show? 
We are watching Peaky Blinders right now, which I know has been around for a while, but my wife and I are really into it. <laughs> and your go-to karaoke song? Easy. Rolling Stones, Paint It Black. I have heard you sing that, which yes. is why I asked you. It, it was extremely impressive. It's vocally challenging enough, and it always gets the crowd going. It was very impressive. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure having you, CD. Thank you, MC. Lots of fun. Thanks. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44020, 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523-BIMAL. 230 the material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. mx Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.